The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to episode 308 of The History of Literature. we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Literature. Whoa! <laughs> what a slip that was. If only Jack Literature. Why can't I be named that? That's as good as Mike Palindrome. I'm Jack Literature. Literature. Except no, I'm not that lucky. I'm just me. Jack Loser. Jack Wilson. Let's move on. Today we have something a little different. Let me give you some background. Last year I had the chance to talk to Anna North about her new novel, which is an updated Western, and I was excited. It's called Outlawed, and I was excited because, hey, I like talking to really smart people. Anna's about as smart as it gets, and I like talking to great writers. She's also one of those, and I was in the middle of a genre month, Westerns. Oh, I love thinking about Westerns. First of all, because they loom kind of large in my mind. I grew up with Western movies and Western comic books and so on. I was sort of a generation or two behind the really, really classic Western era. That was more my dad's era. Bonanza on TV and Gunsmoke and Wild Wild West and all that. I, I didn't really remember any of that, but I was around it. It was sort of my inheritance and culturally. And as I came of age, we were already noticing the problems with those movies. They provide a very distorted view of history, for sure. They're close to propaganda. You could say they're legends, myths, and propaganda. And yet within that world, the world of straight Westerns, there are cracks. There are little moments where the real history peeks through. There were some artists making those films, and you'd get films where you'd see a little bit of the uh, the man behind the curtain, so to speak. The wizard. Here's why I like thinking about Westerns. They're part of history now. They're not dominant in our culture. They've transformed into something else. The stories have become something else. The importance has faded. As someone who likes the history of literature, I like it when genres fade in importance. It helps us see them in perspective. What did they mean? What did they mean to those people at that time? What do they mean to us now? And when new authors enter the picture and sort through the cliches and pick up the ones that have been discarded See if there's still life in them. See if it's time for re-examination, for reimagination, for bringing what's interesting about these genres into something that's compelling for us today with our modern sensibility. That's what I like. Interests me. Enter Anna North, author of Outlawed. Yes, I'd like to talk to her, of course. Perfect for the Westerns month or the genre month with the Westerns episode, which I think was last November. And yet her publisher suggested, you know, her book hasn't released yet. November isn't really the perfect timing for us. And so I devised a solution. We ran part of this interview last year where we focused on Westerns as a genre and how Anna navigated that. 
And now we present to you the full interview where she talks about Westerns as a genre at the start and then talks about Crazy Cat Comics, one of her key influences, which is amazing and awesome. (laughs) That was fun. And we have a surprise bonus question. We also have the added benefit of celebrating the launch of Anna North's book, which I saw was the number one book in LGBT literary fiction, according to Amazon.com and its categories. So the book is off to a good start and worth your time in checking out. We'll have some listener emails and then our full conversion. (laughs) I was going to say conversion. Our full conversion with Anna North. Wow, what is happening today? Maybe it's a day for conversions. I guess that's up to you. Maybe this is where I converted from Jack Wilson to Jack Literature today. Ah, well. Listener emails and then a full conversation with Anna North after this. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious, ready to eat meals. These things are amazing, chef crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code LITERATURE50 at factormeals.com slash LITERATURE50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
first email today, our only email today, I guess, comes from Hannah. Hi, Jack. I've been listening for about six months now and am thoroughly enjoying your discussions of literature. I'm a former children's book buyer, and listening to your wonderful show is one of the ways I manage to continue to feel in touch with the literary community. I've been thinking of writing for a while, but what finally got me to sit down and type this out was one of your more recent listener emails, specifically the one that discussed your voice. I have an 18-month-old son who has always fallen asleep best when being held. Nap times and bedtimes both at least begin with him strapped to my chest in our heirloom rocking chair. I began working my way through your backlog of episodes at night when my son is falling asleep and he truly seems to respond to your voice. I tried finishing up a different podcast one night and he fought and fought going down. When I put yours back on, he was soothed and settled right in. This is wonderful for me, as I get to be drawn in and riveted by wonderful stories and fascinating figures while he goes quietly to sleep. So thank you for making our bedtime transition that much easier and more enjoyable for everyone. Additionally, I don't know if you remember this, but there was an earlier episode where you were telling Mike about reading when your children were little and the unique experience that is reading a good book with a sleeping baby on your chest. I identified so well with this, as nearly all my reading for the past year and a half has been done during nap time. It is one of my favorite times of day to sit in that old rocking chair and get swept up in a great book while my son snores peacefully into my shoulder. There is truly nothing quite like it. I imagine I will miss it greatly when he grows older, though I know there will be new joys then as well. Thank you for articulating that feeling. It was quite touching to hear of an experience I resonate with so well. Please keep up the great work, and thank you. Hannah. Oh, Hannah. Hannah, Hannah, Hannah. Do we have some music for this? There we go. Hmm. Things are soft now and quiet, and Hannah has this beautiful boy slumbering in her arms. She breathes. The boy breathes, too. The warmth comes from him. The warmth comes from her as well. She makes him feel safe. He makes her feel more alive than she's ever felt, and yet her mind needs to travel, too. Her mind needs to explore because hers is a grown-up mind with lots of room for thoughts and ideas. His will be too, someday. For now, it's all feelings like warmth and safety and joy and love. The simplest of sensations, hunger and thirst and cold and surprise. The new language learning and all the potential in the world wrapped up in that mind. Sleep is a good thing. So is thought. And so is love. And so I cannot tell you, Hannah, how thrilled I am for you that you have this time with your son. And yes, I can think of nothing better than to read these books during this time and even to read them aloud. If you haven't tried that already, I read hundreds of books to my son. I found that my voice soothed him and he loved staring at the pages while I read he didn't need pictures, just the sight of the words on the page were enough. Of course, I read lots of other books to him too, children's books, but when he was drowsy, he didn't mind being curled up in a warm ball of dad 
with dad's books and dad's voice there for him. What a beautiful time. Thank you so much for sharing that image with me of you and your son. And of course, I am honored that my voice is in there too sometimes. Keeping you company. It brings me great joy to know that. We're all readers here. We're all listeners. We're all talkers. And we're all children of parents. And we're all parents or at least caretakers of the next generation. Sometimes it's easy to forget that as we go about our business and of getting and taking and struggling. It's easy to forget the simplicity of it as we argue about politics and economics and legal issues and religion and foreign policy and complicated news of all kinds. In the end, we boil down to people who need to feel that warmth with one another. And the mother to the child at nap time is the most direct transfer of warmth we have. It is what we remember and what we build upon our past and our future. And sometimes, for some of us, our present. Good luck to you, Hannah, and to your little one, and I hope you have many more moments of togetherness, even as he grows. You may have nap time, and you may have the days he reads to you coming up, and the days he comes home from school, proud to show you his homework, and all the other days that you will have together, the days and the moments, until someday... Far down the road, he's the one tucking you in, maybe, and the one kissing your forehead, and your memories are all still there. And I'll probably still be doing this crummy little podcast, <laughs> begging people to join my Patreon account, but that's okay. Don't worry. Jack Wilson can play the fool. Jack literature might rise up to take his place, and when nap time is over... The conversation with Anna North, author of Outlawed, can begin. Thank you for the email, Hannah. And we will be back after this. Joining me now is Anna North, a journalist and novelist whose journalistic work currently focuses on reproductive health and the politics thereof. Anna is the author of three novels, America Pacifica, The Life and Death of Sophie Stark, and a new novel, Outlawed, which has been described as The Crucible Meets True Grit. Anna North, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so this fits right in with our Thursday theme that we're doing. We're doing literary genres this month. We've done romance novels, we've done science fiction, and I really wanted to do westerns. I know we're no longer in the peak years of westerns, but they still loom large in our consciousness in television and films, if no longer quite as strongly in book form, or at least not in the Zane Grey or Louis L'Amour dime store paperback classic western form. So when you were setting out to write your third novel, what drew you to the Old West? 
Um, yeah, so I'd actually, I originally got the idea for this novel. It was a few years back. I was actually um, walking with a friend um, in, you know, sort of a woodsy area in New Hampshire. So, you know, here in the Northeast, um, yeah. I live in New York City. And uh, we visited um, an old Shaker dwelling. So the Shakers were a group of people you know, sort of a separatist group of people, and they uh, they chose to live by different rules than the rest of society. Um, they, for instance, didn't marry and they didn't have children. Um, mm. I got really interested in this these ideas of sort of separatist groups, people living outside of, you know, more traditional society, which kind of got me thinking about outlaws. Mm. Mm-hmm. As I was sort of doing early drafts of the book, I was trying to set it, you know, where my friend and I had been um, in New Hampshire, but I'm from Los Angeles and, um, you know, sort of the landscapes of the Western United States um, have always been sort of easier for me to write about. It feels like home in a certain way. It feels like there's a richness of experience there that I can draw on. Um, And so I started thinking of Westerns also for that reason, Um, you know, and and as I I did more reading and we can talk about this more, I started thinking about the ways that um, you can kind of subvert the Western genre or play with it and the ways that different authors have done that across history. Yeah, right. Okay, so let's, uh, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. I feel like you answered about my first six questions. (laughs) Very uh, compact and concise uh, answer there. So uh, let's talk about, well, let's talk about the landscape. So what is it, uh, do you think, about the Western landscape that's made it so rich for, uh, as a setting for these works? a particular kind of beauty. And it's also, um, you know, I think there's a way in which, you know, sort of high culture in the United States, if you want to put it that way, can be very centered on urban centers, can be very centered on, you know, the Northeast. And so I think for like folks who live in New York City and maybe the publishing industry, you know, some people who sort of were you know, perhaps in past times and to some degree still kind of the arbiters of high taste or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, the the West feels far away in this way and, and you know, even exotic. And we can talk about how that's problematic. Um, but it's also true that, you know, that the landscapes of the West are just very different from, you know, if you're walking around New York City today or here I'm, you know, looking out my window in Brooklyn. Um, and I think, I think for me, just personally, it's also about homesickness. You know, I haven't actually been able, um, you know, it's been obviously a strange year for for everyone in a tragic year and I haven't been able to go home to California this year and so just now my book is done but when I talk to you or when I when I talk about the book there's a real homesickness for those landscapes and even though you know when I was writing it we weren't yet in COVID it was a different time when I could travel and see my family and see my hometown I, I think there was still kind of a homesickness for me that led me to think about you know some of the even just you know birds and animals that you can see in in my case in California but then when I was researching the book I also traveled uh, I traveled to Wyoming I went to the hole in the wall valley mm. which we can also talk about more but thinking back to um, you know the birds and animals that I saw there and just sort of the um, you know the red rock formations. It's this very, very powerful, like arresting visual imagery that, um, you know, really stays with me even now that the book is long finished. Yeah. Does it feel to you, speaking of it today, does it feel to you like a frontier and like a vast open space or does it feel sort of tamed and as if the wildness of it and the the emptiness of it has been now that, that that's just part of the past? Right. I mean, this is something that I think um, I think that, um, you know, more contemporary novelists have really explored with really interesting results is like the question of what is what is a frontier. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean, so, 
you know, for, for Europeans and for people, you know, who consider themselves Americans or, you know, U.S. citizens, like the West was a frontier in a way in the 19th century. But obviously for indigenous people who already lived there, it wasn't necessarily a frontier or there might have been, you know, different internal frontiers that they might have might have come across in different mm-hmm. regions. Um, but, you know, the, Amer- the American West kind of only makes sense if you think about it from a perspective of I'm like probably a white person, you know, looking West from from the East and probably from the Northeast. Um, so already it's like this funny, you know, a very kind of Eurocentric or US centric idea of what is a frontier is like baked into the conventional Western. But there was this sense too, that in the West, there were certain rules um, from the East that didn't apply. So Mm -hmm. for example, um, in the Western states and territories, um, women, specifically um, white women, um, you know, women who had U.S. citizenship, they were often able to vote before before women in the East were. And, you know, there were sometimes sometimes other things that, you know, were freer or people, um, you know, people could kind of flee the East and go out West and do things they might not have been able to do. Uh, it's a similar, you know, we've, we've seen similar stories throughout sort of colonialism, right, where people, people would flee their initial places and go somewhere else where they might have had more freedoms. And that that is a really interesting dynamic to explore. And at the same time, you have this conflict where those new freedoms often came at the price of the freedoms of the people who had lived there before. Mm. So in the case of the American West, it's indigenous nations who had lived on that land for a long time and, you know, suddenly found themselves being kicked off and, and finding their land dispossessed and colonized. So it is like, I, I think there are all these contradictions. When you look at the West, some of the contradictions that kind of underpin the entire country of the United States, I think they're just really magnified when you look at what we think of as the American West. Right. We are now, I guess, several decades into a kind of revisionist look at at the Western, but it seems like for a 21st century author in particular, there's just a whole layer of complexities that go along with it. Did you find that kind of the Western uh, genre and readers' expectations would be you, you mentioned it almost like it would be a sort of uh, opportunities for you of things you could subvert or correct or or play with. But did you find it to be a burden to know that, you know, readers would come into it expecting one thing based on their conception of the West? Right. I mean, not a burden necessarily. I think, you know, I, I think there's been this really interesting movement for, you know, probably much longer than I've been paying attention to it, but I've probably been paying attention to it now for like almost 20 years, a movement in sort of literary fiction towards reexamining some things that were once thought of as genre fiction. And, you know, how can mm. we, how yeah. can we reimagine these things? How can we kind of, um, you know, bring some of some of what's interesting about literary fiction and also add in some of what's interesting about these genres. So we saw this, you know, we've seen it with mystery, we've seen it with comics, you know, we've seen it um, in science fiction. And this is actually something, um, you know, a lot of a lot of writers who I sort of came up with, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Alice Sola Kim, um, I'm thinking about, you know, just a lot of folks who I'm actually, you know, now in a writing group with and, and folks that I went to school with at various times. So writers who kind of, literary writers who kind of came of age, you know, maybe in the, in the 2000s and the 2010s. I think that a lot of us have sort of been thinking about what is literary, what is genre, how do we play with these things? And so that's always sort of been part of my thinking when I'm starting a new book is like this idea of like, you know, yes, maybe in some ways this is going to be a literary novel, but I'm always kind of in the back of my mind have the idea that there are genre tropes available to me that that I could I could experiment with. And a lot of that is due to writers who came before me and like writers that I kind of grew up with in a creative way. And 
one thing when I was starting to write this book is, you know, I hadn't really tried that on the Western before. Um, in America Pacifica, that's a dystopia. So I definitely played with a lot of a lot of science fiction elements. And that's a genre that I worked in and worked around for a long time, but I hadn't ever really thought about doing it with the Western. So that was kind of an interesting formal and genre challenge for mm -hmm. me as a writer. And, you know, I didn't think too much, I guess, about what readers' expectations are of Westerns, because as you kind of mentioned, there aren't actually a lot of conventional Westerns being written today. So I think people may have this old-timey view of what a Western is, but you don't really have, you know, Zane Grey anymore. So right. In some ways, it's a little ripe for reinvention. You weren't expecting your reader to be plucking your book out off a rack at a grocery store or something and, and being confused or anything like that. It's it's pretty comfortable, uh, comfortably placed in the literary fiction category. And, and people are aware that what they're going to be getting is probably not going to be just a, a conventional formulaic full of cliche uh, white hat, black hat with a, a showdown at, at high noon or anything like that. Right. And I mean, there's not like the, uh, you know, Western style in the bookstore anymore. Not that yeah, a lot of bookstores right. are even open, but <laughs> if if they were, there wouldn't be. So um, I, I think it's something that like, I, I sort of hope that for my audience, they would know that they're going to get something a little different. Right. Well, let's talk about what they get. And, and in particular, the characters, we haven't really talked about them yet. And I'm, I'm curious now, if this was uh, you sort of had in mind, uh, uh, maybe a, a woman who came to mind when you were uh, visiting the Shaker Society and thinking about that, or if it was a different character that you had in mind, or who did you, how did you come up with your protagonist? Sure. So, um, no, she wasn't really inspired by by the Shakers or exactly by anybody in particular. Um, some other characters had um, had you know some some more inspirations, and I also um, I did do a fair amount of research on sort of real-life outlaws, which included a lot of women, included a lot of queer people, you know, so the idea that, the, that these cowboys were all just all just dudes, for lack of a better word, that's that's not really accurate. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of rich and interesting history about, about female outlaws. So I definitely was thinking about that. You know, for Ada specifically, I wanted to, this book has, there's a lot of sort of issues that I'm interested in in the book, but one of them is sort of the issue of knowledge and how do we gain knowledge and what does knowledge do and how is knowledge useful and how is it not useful? Mm, um, right. And the same sort of of science, you know, how is it useful and, and how is it less useful? And for Ada, I think really her driving force is wanting more knowledge, wanting to know things. She's very curious. You know, she's, she's an apprentice midwife um, and she really wants to learn everything she can about really the science of midwifery and the science of how people's bodies work and medicine. And she has this belief that I think ultimately is shown to be a little bit naive that if everybody just understood the science that the world she lives in, which is very stigmatizing and very circumscribed, that people wouldn't have the same prejudices anymore. So when I was thinking about her, that was really her driving force. I was thinking a lot about, you know, qualities that I do sometimes see in myself, um, including, you know, being curious and wanting a lot of knowledge. And then sort of the flip side of that, of sometimes being kind of a know-it-all or um, thinking that, like, just because you know something, it can solve everything. I do think that, like, you know, as a writer and a journalist, sometimes we and I I fall into that trap. So, hmm. you know, well, she's certainly not based on me. I, I think, you know, I was thinking of those aspects of myself and also just those aspects of knowledge seeking more generally as I was as I was constructing her. Right. So I don't want to give too much away. So I'll follow your lead on how much of the <laughs> plot and everything and uh, to go through. But she's the daughter of a midwife. Isn't that right? 
That's right. And then, yeah, so she she gains a lot of knowledge there and she has some experiences early. And then, and again, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but there's there's a point where she basically uh, makes a pitch for herself, right? Where she she talks about that knowledge and she says, here's what I can do. And she, she rattles off like five or six things that she knows and it's related to uh, health. And, and uh, that's how she's hoping to gain entry into this world. It's a really striking passage in the book. I hope I'm doing it justice in this sort of vague way that I, I, I don't know how much you want to reveal about what happens to her. As you say, Ada, um, she's her mother's a midwife. She's an apprentice midwife. And, you know, I think we can certainly reveal that, you know, the sort of basic plot, which is that she lives in a society where reproduction is prized above all else. Um, mm. And it's um, we should say, too, that um, although, you know, this book is, is a Western or revisionist Western, it's also an alternate history. So it takes place in the 1890s. But these aren't really our 1890s. It's it's a sort of alternate alternate history where some things have gone differently, including actually a pandemic flu that has wiped out much of the U.S. population mm. by around the 1830s. And again, I'm not giving too much away because that happens in the first couple pages. Right. You know, so Ada lives in this world that is very, very stigmatizing toward anyone who can't reproduce, anyone who can't have children. And she's a midwife, so she's very ensconced in this world of reproduction. And then it turns out that she herself is barren in, in the language of the book. She can't have kids. So she has to figure out what to do. The world becomes actually very dangerous for her. It's very, very dangerous to be a barren woman in the society. And she has to flee and she has to kind of she has to figure out how to survive. And one way that she, you know, does find to survive is by offering her services to this group of outlaws uh, led by the kid um, who we can talk about, too. But the group of outlaws is also not not what you would expect based on, I think, the conventional Western. They are mostly female and they're really outlaws, you know, not necessarily because they're they're thieves or robbers or anything like that, but because they also haven't been able to have children or somehow in another way fall outside the sort of very restrictive uh, gender roles that that exist within this alternate society. Hmm. So in that way, Ada is forced to leave what she knows and um, join up with folks that she doesn't know at all who live really outside of everything she's familiar with. And in order to do it, she does at least attempt to draw on her medical knowledge and say, look, you know, you folks are outlaws. Um, maybe you need somebody who can sometimes, you know, heal your cuts and set your bones and, and sew you up. And those those services you know, not to give too much away, but those services do end up being useful later on. Right. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, we've had some authors of historical fiction on here before, and and they describe kind of a a line that they feel like they have to walk, especially when they're using, for example, a strong female protagonist, finding the right balance between taking a someone with a 21st century set of sensibilities and just dropping them into the past and finding something that would be true to a strong woman uh, who lived at that time. And so did you feel that tension when you were writing that there were things where you thought, I would really want her to think this or, or to understand it this way, the way I would, but that wouldn't necessarily be how someone of her era would think? Or was that a concern for you at all? Yeah, definitely. I definitely thought about that. I mean, I think um, I had a little bit more leeway because this is an alternate history. So I didn't feel that I necessarily had to be completely true to how someone in the real 1890s would think. Um, But I thought about this a lot um, when it came to questions around racism. So, Mm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, Ada is white. I'm also white. Um, in the book, she does come across, um, you know, part of part of her society's sort of obsession with reproduction also dovetails. 
parallels with, in certain cases, an obsession with eugenics, um, obviously, which also is, is in real history. You know, so she encounters a lot of people who are very racist and um, she sort of you know, has to figure out how she responds to that. She also encounters characters of color who have experienced a lot of racism. She has to figure out how she responds to that. And that was a real struggle for me. I think, frankly, I think especially as a white writer, my facility with writing about race is, is you know, limited to some degree by my, my own living in a, in, frankly, in a, you know, mm. in a white patriarchal society where white people don't always have to think that much about race. Right. Um, so, you know, for me, it was it was a real process of thinking like, OK, well, um, you know, I don't want you know, this main character that I do want people to root for. I don't want her espousing ideas that are hateful, but I also, you know, I also want to recognize that those ideas existed, you know, during her time and they exist during our time. They existed in the real 1890s. So kind of walking that line, I did, I did find really difficult. Mm. It was the same true when it came to reproductive health? Were you able to find source material or anything that would help you understand how someone of that era would be, you know, viewing the role of a midwife and so on? So I did read a lot about midwifery in that era, era and even earlier, you know, about medicine in that era, era and earlier. I, in some ways, I think it was easier for me to think through these kinds of historical questions um, with respect to sort of reproductive health, because in my in my work as a journalist, I, I'm just really steeped in that. Mm. And so mm-hmm. I, I feel like I had a really rich knowledge to draw to draw on in terms of, you know, how did people feel about this at different times? How did people talk and think about their bodies and other people's bodies? You know, so in that way, it was like I felt like I had a, a more of a backlog of knowledge, you know, and so and so I was a little more confident. And it's also true that like, you know, there have been throughout history, people who, you know, I hesitate to call it like progressive, because that puts a political label on it. But let me put it this way, reproductive health in America today is is very political and very politicized. But that's relatively recent historically. And for instance, if you go back 17th century, you know, go back to the 18th century, that's no longer true. And for example, you know, abortions weren't necessarily illegal. Real real life midwives were were out there providing, you know, sort of a wide range of reproductive health care from abortion to delivering babies to diagnosing reproductive health disorders. And so this was really an area of life and an area of American life that wasn't necessarily controversial in the same way for a long time that was and that was also totally dominated by women and often you know by like a diverse group of women so you know one interesting thing that I've learned from from historians and legal scholars is just just about the original you know makeup of midwives around the country that actually um, you know many of them were black women some of them were white women some of them were indigenous women it was really a, a diverse group of mostly female reproductive health practitioners who were just kind of in charge of all of this stuff for a really long time Mm. And it's when that stops more in the 19th century and reproductive health care is sort of more professionalized and more men move into the space that it becomes more politicized and more sort of controversial in a certain way. So that's a long winded way of saying that, like, there have always been people who take care of aspects of reproductive health that we may or may not consider controversial today. And and there's a lot of things that like maybe would seem political in 2020 that might have not seemed political or might have not seemed controversial to someone in the 1800s. Um, right. that's, that's maybe how I'll leave it. Right. I was just struck by what a window it is into a, another culture. Childbirth is so, I mean, it's obviously it's been with 
humans as long as there have been humans. And it's as natural as eating and, and breathing and everything. But yet you can look at different societies and see a whole different regime and a whole different set of uh, beliefs and values. And I found it really fascinating to read that in your book and just to think about it in the way that, you know, a good comparative literature might make me think about my own culture. It made me think about the experience uh, that I went through with my wife, uh, I guess, a couple times and in the hospitals and in that regime. And I remember the doctors would once in a while, they would say something like, well, you know, in the old days, they wouldn't have this. They'd just be out in a field or something. And my wife would be <laughs> You know, saying that doesn't help me. That that's not you know, that, like I'm like great. I'm glad you're you're calling back to ancient times, but that's not exactly what I want to hear right now. And and yet, uh, when she was in the Peace Corps in Morocco, she had friends who were out in these villages, and they would be helping with reproductive health in those villages. And there would be a whole different way of thinking about this and approaching this. And it meant something different to the women. And it was all the the different belief systems that can surround something as fundamental to human life as childbirth is really a, a rich and fascinating topic. And I was really fascinated to see your characters going through it right from the very first pages of your novel. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it was really interesting to write this book because I started it, you know, I'm trying to remember what year I started it now. I think I started it before I was married, um, but I was already together with my husband and then was working on it while I was trying to get pregnant and then working on it while I was pregnant and then finishing it up right after my son was born, you know, and then doing the copy edits and stuff while, while, you know, he's a toddler. It was very interesting to sort of see the book through that lens and see, you know, like the real life process of childbirth, at least for me today, through the lens of the book. I mean, one thing that I found really funny. I remember, um, you know, I was probably like eight and a half months pregnant or something. And a friend of mine, a male friend, he asked me, he was like, have they taught you to give birth in a disaster scenario? Mm. And I was like, what are you taught? What? No, no, no one has taught me that. He's like, well, you know, like if you had to be alone in the woods, did anyone teach you what you should do? <laughs> um, and I was like, no, no, no one has taught me that. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, um, indeed it didn't, you know, I keep her at the hospital, but then I, I kept thinking about him because then, you know, like when the pandemic hit, mm. um, there were a lot more people thinking about giving birth at home and yeah. a lot more people also thinking about giving birth, um, you know, with midwives or in a birthing center rather than in a hospital and really like even, you know, during when I was working on the book and then in the last year, as I've kind of seen that shift, I have thought a lot about like the different, you know, the cultural things that we put around birth, the medical things that we put around birth, the way that we give birth. You know, in some ways, what, and I, I'd done a lot of research on, on midwives and midwifery before I worked on this book, but in some ways it was eye-opening to do even more for the book and just to think about, you know, this very different and much more social and sort of much more human model of birth than, than the one that we often have now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's complicated because like the book is obviously like it, you know, it's set in a really in a really sick society with a lot of problems and, um, you know, a society that is really abusive toward a lot of its people and really abusive toward people in particular that can't conceive and can't have children, you know, which I would argue American society also is to some degree abusive to people who can't have children or who choose not to have children mm -hmm. and sometimes abusive to people who do have children. So, you know, right. it's not great for anybody. But I did think about I was conscious of not wanting to really write another dystopia. My first novel is more dystopian. And in this case, like, I really didn't want that to be the tone. I didn't want that to necessarily be the message. So while this is a society that 
has a lot of really deep-seated problems and a lot of really deep-seated, you know, sins, for lack of a better word. It is also one that sort of um, that treats pregnant people with a respect that I think we don't actually treat pregnant people with in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, like, in, there's it's a small moment, but there's a moment in the book when a character is advised that if she's pregnant, even if she's not married or even if the father of her child... Um, you know, it's like having an affair with her that he'll have to support her and then like the community will come around her and support her because they just value children that much and they, they just like they're definitely going to take care of her no matter what. And that's certainly not what we have here in the U.S., yeah. um, either in the medical system or in, you know, sort of social services and social support. So in that way, it's like I wanted this book to be truly not a nightmare scenario, but just kind of an alternate scenario of like, what if, you know, what if history had, un had unfolded differently? What are the sort of new challenges, but also new triumphs that might happen? Mm, right. Although, even though it's an alternative history, and even though it's, as you say, it sort of focuses on the new and, and gives us a, a glimpse into the new, it's got that universal anchor. It comes down to women get pregnant and they have babies and, and there is something uh, just uh, essential about it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think the really interesting thing is sort of um, the way the way that a variety of different cultures have sort of, you know, made their own meaning around pregnancy and pregnant people and the lack of pregnancy. And um, I haven't even delved into this probably as much as uh, as as much as maybe I should, but I, I remain really interested in the ways that, you know, American culture today not just, you know, restricts what people can do around their reproductive health, but then also has all these messages around it, these messages about when you should or should not have a child, the message about who should have a child, the message about who's competent to take care of a child. Um, you know, these are all like there's so many anybody who can get pregnant basically is surrounded by those messages from the time that they realize that they're a person that could get pregnant. And that's something I don't unpack a ton in the book, but it's always kind of there. This idea mm. that like, you know, you grow up you grow up as a woman, anybody with a uterus, you know that like there's this narrative that's going to be put on you whether you want it there or not and you have to figure out how to live within or break outside of that narrative mm, right okay so let's move to the uh, books i asked you to choose a couple books for us to talk about in this context and you mentioned one c pam zhang's book how much of these hills is gold which is a novel that came out earlier this year Two Chinese siblings are let loose into the American West. What do you admire about the way that Zhang is able to use the Old West? Yeah, I really love this book. And I think I'll, I'll just start by saying I found just the setting incredibly evocative. You know, I think that's not always true in, in literary fiction and it doesn't even always matter. You can, you can read a book that's wonderful and the setting is just kind of whatever, or it's just a backdrop, but I felt like I could really breathe in, um, you know, specifically gold country and sort of the mother load. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm put, I'm putting this in, in Northeast California here and I hope I'm not, I, I hope I'm not like slightly mismapping the book, but that's, that's the map I was picturing mm -hmm. and just those sort of, you know, the parched hills and the smells and the animals, just like I, I found so so well done that I was almost tearing up thinking about, you know, how long it's been since I've been out West. Mm, yeah. So, so that aspect is just incredibly well done, you know, and then it, it does this really interesting thing of like telling, you know, telling this beautiful and like really like 
deeply sad family story. That's also a story of the land of the West and the sort of like multiple thefts of that land, I think is like, is really well evoked here. You know, the initial theft of that land from indigenous people, but then there's also theft, you know, without giving too much away that the central family also experiences this, this real theft um, by white people. And so, so the theft, you know, not, not just that sort of like the initial theft of this land from the people who live there, but then all the ways that, you know, that essentially like white colonizers came in and stole from everybody else in those territories, whether it was immigrants who came from China, whether it was indigenous people, black people who were also in those territories. That sounds like a lot to encompass sort of historically and sociologically, but Mm. the book just really gets at that in, I think, really interesting and nuanced ways. Right. Part of this is like when you watch a movie with your kids, for example, maybe your your child isn't old enough yet, but when you watch a movie, you, you know, you go back to some movie that came out in the 50s or something, or if I were to pick up a Western from the 50s, I'm sure there would be parts in it that would just make me cringe, either because the stereotypes would be so clumsy or there would be such a, a an assumed kind of attitude toward Native Americans or people of color or, or just, you know, something else that would just make me cringe. And part of reading a a contemporary work by a 21st century author is hopefully that they will avoid that kind of a cringeworthy moment where they're making these kind of assumptions. But the other thing that is even better, I think, is that it just adds these layers of complexity and you feel like you're learning so much more and you feel like you're seeing things from a different way and, and it just makes the reading experience that much deeper. Uh, it sounds like that's what we could expect from a book like How Much of These Hills is Gold. Definitely. You know, when I think people think of a sort of conventional Western, it's like white dudes with guns and they're shooting. And then if, for example, if indigenous people appear, you know, they're probably like heavily stereotyped. They might be dressed in in clothes that they would never wear in that time period or in that place. They might be either like a villain or they just get killed off. And, you know, other than that, it's basically just like white guys shooting each other, probably. Mm-hmm. And I think the strength of um, the strength of how much of these cells is gold and um you know, there there have been a number, I think, of other of other books and also, um, you know, movies and TV to some degree also that have said, like, look, it was never like there's never a universe where it was just these white guys in the American West. And then maybe an occasional like supporting player that's like this heavily stereotyped Native American person. Right. This has always been a diverse place. There were always like tons of stories there, tons of different stories, tons of fascinating stories. It kind of come back, comes back. I mean, just what you were saying reminded me of something that, you know, people say a lot about journalism, but I think it's true in fiction too around diversity and representation that like diversity and representation aren't just aren't just a moral imperative, right? It's like although they are, it is good and moral, you know, to have diverse books and diverse writers and diverse perspectives. Um, but it's also like a like a quality thing that you're just gonna have better literature and a better literary canon if it is a more diverse one. And you know, that sort of goes back to what you were I think saying about, you know, the richness of stories and the nuance of stories is that like we just we just have a better, richer, more nuanced array of stories to read and look at when we recognize that some of the stories that we were told and like, you know, I should own as a white person, like the stories that have been told by white people and valorized by white people, including white women, you know, that these stories are not the only stories. And, you know, that by contrast, like perhaps they're a very, very small part of the real story that's always been going on. 
Right. People might think, oh, you update the Western genre. So here's what you do. You have a woman who can drink the men under the table and she can shoot better than any of the men. And she's actually braver and they make her sheriff. And that's, you know, that's all you need to do. And instead, what we're talking about here is something that's much more historically interesting and, and realistic and, and just gives real layers of what people of that time and, and how things actually were during that period. I think how much of these hills is gold, although it plays with history in interesting ways. So, for example, the chapter headings um, are dated, but but that'll, it'll say like XX62 instead of 1862, which, you know, I'm, I'm very curious about and need to maybe read more about and figure out if, the, if that's a device to maybe suggest that, like, could this story be happening at a totally different time mm. um, or in mm-hmm. a totally different place? But I do think it, it feels grounded in the real history in a serious way. But I should say, too, that it's also just like a really good story and it's just like really engaging to read. And I think stories of people trying to survive, stories of people living in a really new place, stories of people living in this physical environment that can be kind of unforgiving. There's things about the quote unquote Western, you know, that just kind of like make for good narrative. Yeah, definitely. I think I think Zhang explores that. Um, And that's something I really tried to explore, too, in my book is like I wanted to kind of I wanted to deepen and question the idea of what is a Western. But I did, you know, really also want to tell a fun story and like try to have fun with it, try to have fun with, you know, the ideas of genre. I mean, the book deals with these really serious things, but it's a novel I want I, I want to entertain. And and so I I did I did try to do that and try to sort of think about like what is fun about these kinds of stock stories that people tell? Why do people keep telling them? What are what are the good and interesting elements you can kind of maintain and use to your own devices? Mm. Okay, so the other book you mentioned came as a surprise to me at first, and then I think I sort of figured it out, but you mentioned George Harriman's Crazy Cat comics. So I think uh, most listeners will be familiar with Crazy Cat, at least a little. It was a strip that ran in the newspapers from 1913 to 1944. And it's it's one of the most surreal comic strips I think we've ever had. There's a carefree cat named Crazy who loves a mouse called Ignatz who keeps throwing bricks at Crazy's head. A strip after strip leads to this ending where uh, Ignatz is throwing a brick at Crazy's head. But Crazy still just has this unrequited love for Ignatz no matter what uh, no matter what Ignatz does, crazy is always there, always hopeful, always optimistic. And the characters speak in a kind of Louisiana patois, and the creator, George Harriman, had a fascinating life himself. So when did you first encounter Crazy Cat, and and what uh, makes Crazy Cat so special for you? Yeah, Crazy Cat is, is a real inspiration for my book. I've been reading these comics forever. My grandfather was actually a big Crazy Cat fan, mm-hmm. um, and then my dad really loves Crazy Cat. So I think I first kind of, you know, got more deeply interested in them. Maybe as a teenager, I remember my dad taking me to actually like an exhibition of Crazy Cat Comics and Museum in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, great. They're just, like you say, they're very surreal. You know, they're very strange. But they also are like, are just very progressive in, in these, or just very, they feel contemporary in these ways that I didn't fully understand necessarily as a teenager, but definitely struck me even then. Mm. You know, I mean, one example is that Crazy Cat doesn't necessarily have binary have a binary gender identity. Right. Crazy is sometimes he, sometimes crazy is she. George Harriman, the creator, um, didn't really answer, you know, questions about, uh, you know, what is crazy's gender. There's also, I mean, like sexuality is interesting in the comics because it is, for example, like, is Crazy Cat queer? Like, what is the nature of his attraction to, to Ignatz the Mouse? And I mean, it sounds like funny, and the, the comics are very funny and, and, and silly, but it, they are these stories that are kind of subversive. Yeah. Critics often just sort of call crazy 
a female, but Harriman would said at one one point he said the cat's a spirit, like a sprite or an elf. They have no sex. They can't be a he or a she. And crazy in the comics once said, I don't know if I should take a husband or a wife. So it's not like this was. I mean, it was it was pretty prominent. It was open in the comics itself. Yeah, it's it's very open. And um, Gabrielle Balot actually has a great essay on this in the New Yorker, where she talks um, about Crazy's gender identity and then also about um, George Harriman's racial identity because yeah. he actually um, he was mixed race um, and he lived as white for most of his life. Um, there are questions about you know whether whether his identity sort of figures in the strip in certain ways um, and and how he felt as as someone who um, who had that heritage. So there's kind of a lot going on both below the surface and just on the surface. The reason I kept coming back to Crazy Cat when I was thinking about my book is that it's also kind of a Western. So um, it's set in Arizona. Um, and I, I'm actually, I have it here. I'm like paging through. This is, um, <laughs> this is volume eight of the complete cat comics, 1923. You know, there's a lot of kind of Western landscapes. There's these sort of, um, you know, salt flats and like buttes. Um, and there's this kind of sheriffy figure office, a pup who is like an important character to me. It feels like even though it's from the twenties, it, it feels like the, almost like a proto neo western if that's like a weird way to put it but an example of a subversive western where there's like a western landscape this sort of quote-unquote frontier where the old rules maybe of sexuality maybe of identity of gender don't necessarily apply and at least crazy can kind of you know can can live a a life that wouldn't necessarily be available to to a human person in in other places right maybe like a uh, nobody out here is gonna pay that close of attention to who i am and what i'm doing Right. And it's also like, I think, you know, it's, it's absurdist. So nobody's going to really say like, you know, in 1920, like, wait a second, is this cat gay? What's going on here? I, I need answers because, because we've, we've put it in this sort of absurd world. And I think that's like, um, I would need to read more about Harriman to know how much of this I think was intentional, but you know, it is, it is this way of sort of, um, maybe forestalling any questions about anything deeper that's going on there. Right. I read one fantastic anecdote about Harriman where he was visiting the Navajo Nation and and befriending its citizens early on. And he also had Hollywood friends. And there was one point where he came to learn that some Navajo actors who had been hired uh, to be in some older Western movies had said insulting things in their native language that only the native audience could understand. So he set up a private screening where he brought in his Hollywood friends to sit there and they watched this Western together. And then he also uh, invited the Navajo supporting actors to sit there as well because he thought it would be uh, uh, amusing for them to be in on the joke while his, uh, his more famous Hollywood friends would be sitting there uh, not getting the joke. That's funny. I didn't really. I, I had heard before about about Native American actors saying insulting things in in westerns, um, but I didn't realize that Harriman was involved in that. That's really funny. <laughs> well, I am a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan. I would give Bill Watterson the Nobel Prize if I could, if they gave me the uh, the right to do that. And he thought Crazy Cat was the best cartoon ever drawn. And he also said uh, he couldn't really be influenced by it because it was already its own thing and it was so perfect. It is definitely very much its own thing. I mean, I'm a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan, too, and I do feel like I can see the influence. And weirdly, like almost more so with the art than anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're remembering like the Spaceman Spiff ones, um, you know, which are set yep. like they're definitely set in space, but it looks kind of like Arizona. Yeah. Um, and it's like absurdist in the same way. I mean, a lot of Calvin and Hobbes is very absurdist in that way. You can definitely see kind of kind of where he's where he's borrowing from George Harriman a little bit in like a reverential way. 
And when you look at the Sunday strips, you see the the creativity that he was doing with the panels and the shape of the panels and everything. And that's in Crazy Cat. And even just seeing the mouse, there's times where if you sort of squint and you look at the mouse and Crazy, you can kind of see the shapes of Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, Crazy definitely has a Hobbes vibe. That makes a lot of sense. That's really funny. Yeah. Okay, so I have a surprise bonus question for you. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. As the author of a newly launched novel during the pandemic, you are in the middle of a publicity tour conducted exclusively online. (laughs) Luckily, you have a representative who not only sets you up with book clubs and libraries and interview opportunities, she has invested in a little bit of magic as well. When you ask her what your next interview will be, she says, ahem, well, this may come as a bit of a surprise. We have just purchased Zoom Plus, and one of the features is that it has some time travel capabilities. I've been able to connect you with a few book clubs from the 1890s, two groups of 10 readers, and I've given them your book to read. They are in the Old West. The setting I used is called Zoom on the Range. The (laughs) The problem is that the book clubs are strongly divided by sex, and we only have the bandwidth for one meeting. So your choice is going to be this. Do you want to meet with the men of the Old West and have a discussion with them? Or would you rather meet the women of the Old West and get a sense of their response to your novel? Which would you choose and what would you most like to know? Oh, my God. I mean, definitely the women. You know, I guess, like, I don't want to I don't want to make any assumptions about what men of the Old West would or wouldn't want to talk about. But I feel like I'd just be more interested in hearing mm. hearing from women. Yeah. Um, you know, and also, especially if any of them had any shared experiences with the characters in my book, then I'd want to know about that. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean, I I guess like there's no like getting it right really in fiction and especially because, you know, this isn't um, straight up historical, but I guess I would be curious um, if they saw themselves at all in the book or mm-hmm. what they thought was missing. I'd want to know, you know, what stories they thought were really missing from the book, you know, but then like, honestly, like probably I just want to know like what their day to day lives were like, like yeah, what are you, right. I feel like that doesn't get captured that much often in history and especially the day to day lives of women, you know, are often totally absent and that stuff falls through the cracks a lot um mm-hmm. at least like traditional history classes so you know i don't know like what'd you do with your kids today <laughs> like yeah, yeah. you don't have kids you know what did you what did you do um at your job are you allowed to have a job do you have i mean i think um you know in, in the west women were doing a lot of jobs that weren't open to them necessarily in other places but um that's still difficult can you vote what do you think about the president in 1890 all, all those questions mm. um wouldn't it be interesting? I mean, it, your book is so vivid in in how the characters are thinking. And wouldn't it be fascinating to hear from women saying, you know, I wouldn't have thought about that in this way. I would have thought about it this way instead. Or here's how I would have responded if this had happened to me. And to hear it from, you know, when you're putting someone in the past like that, to hear it from someone in the past, not not just to see, oh, good, I got it right, but to see how exactly they're approaching these events and and whether, you know, what we can learn from the way their mind is processing them. Definitely. I mean, I would be super interested just in things like, you know, and we have some records about this, but not a ton. Like, if you were trying to get pregnant and you were having trouble, what would you do? Like, I would be interested to ask people from the past that question, right? Or mm. um, if you wanted to end a pregnancy, what would you do? Do you know anyone who's ever done that? Do you know someone that does that? Or like, how many children do you want to have? How many children is too many? How many is not enough? You know, yeah. what do your in-laws think about how many kids you have? What do they think about when you should have kids? Like these kind of social questions, like, do they put pressure on you? You know, I, my sense is that we don't, we don't always like, 
know the answers to these things that have been like really important parts of people's lives. And I would love to know those kinds of like nuts and bolts questions. Mm, Yeah. And would it change it for you at all? If I I was thinking when I put together this question that it might be better rather than to uh, be on the Zoom call with 10 men if you just had one, if you knew that uh, the person would be really honest about how they thought. I'm I'm worried a little bit that the group setting would make the men uh, uh, not give you the best answers. So, I mean, I'm I'm thinking back now to a real thing I did a few years back, which is, <clears throat> you know, this um, uh, polling and research firm that we work with at work, they sometimes convene focus groups. And um, I was able to sit in on some focus groups with different groups of voters, um, actually around the issue of abortion. Um, so I, I sat with, um, I believe, some women who had voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I also sat in on a focus group with some men who had voted for, for Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually really fascinating. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say actually, that was really fascinating. Yeah. In both of those rooms, there was, uh, you know, a diversity of perspectives, you know, and you might perhaps um, expect that among male Trump supporters that there would be like one view on abortion, but there really wasn't. And it was pretty complicated. And um, I felt like the men were sort of um, open to expressing their own vulnerability to a degree and their own uncertainty about some of these issues. So in some way, you know, I mean, if, if you're if you're 10, if you're 10 guys from the Old West could be like that focus group, it would probably be pretty interesting. Mm, Not yeah. to say that those groups would be the same, but I'm just thinking about getting getting groups of men together and what you expect about American men. And that's not, you know, sometimes they can subvert your expectations. Yeah. You know, juries are really interesting, too, if you've ever had a chance to watch a jury debate um, (laughs) or (laughs) deliberate, I guess. Uh, You know, it's such a fascinating thing when the the door closes and people are talking, you know, sometimes with prompts and sometimes to focus on a particular question. It just made me think maybe we should start a channel where uh, book clubs could film themselves and their discussions and you could just tune in and see what whatever the book club has decided to read. Um, yeah, I mean, I, as someone who has been in some book clubs, that certainly puts a lot of pressure on the book club to be smart and interesting <laughs> and not just like drink wine and complain, which we certainly did a, a fair amount of. <laughs> I feel like I don't know if I would I would want all my book clubs to be filmed. But, um, but yeah, as an author from the flip side, I would be super interested, although it's also complicated. I think like it's, it's so fun to hear from readers but it's also like it's also very scary um you know so to some degree having letting letting book clubs have their have their privacy whether it's in the past or in the present is maybe okay right okay well let's leave things there the novel's called outlawed anna north thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature thanks so much Okay, there we go. My thanks to Anna North for joining me today and to Hannah for that beautiful email. I hope nap time went well today. What's a good day? Did you have a good day? Well, for young parents, the shorthand is the nap went well. What's a good day? Oh, a two-hour nap. (laughs) Unless the two-hour nap messes up bedtime. Or this. Oh, he went to sleep in ten minutes. You might as well just say, I had the best day ever. It's amazing how that works. Anna's book is called Outlawed. It's available now at bookstores everywhere. You can learn more about the show, this show, at historyofliterature.com or check out our partners at LitHub Radio and The Podglomerate at www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Literature, as played by that insufferable rapscallion, Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.